The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning in reverence to the reading of the Holy Word of God. This morning our reading will be in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Father God, these these moments of anticipation are are precious to us. We sit as a people anxious to hear from our King, recognizing the full weight that your word brings. It's by your word that you have created all that is. It is by your word that you bring dead men to life. It's by your word that you sustain us to the end. Ultimately, it will be by your word that you judge the world. And so as we seek to handle and rightly comprehend this word that you've given us, there is just an incredible weight to it all. And uh, Father, I, I personally pray now that you would guard my lips and my mind, keep me from saying that which is not true, allow me to only say that which is true and and helpful, what is useful for the building up of the body. Help this to be an act of worship. Worship in spirit and in truth with no reliance whatsoever on the abilities or the thoughts of men, but just your people carried along by the power of your spirit and trust of your word. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you can't tell in my voice, there is great trepidation this morning, perhaps. Just feeling, feeling the weight as we enter into this Advent season, the first Sunday of, of Advent. Advent just means coming or or arrival. And it's those f- four weeks leading up, leading up to Christmas Eve where the people of God just kind of take a step back and we ask God to prepare our hearts and to prepare our minds to celebrate the coming of Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the typical pattern for us as a church has been that when ad- Advent season begins, we would read a special passage of scripture and we would light a candle and then it was just business as usual from then on out. We would continue our verse by verse exposition of whatever book of the Bible God had us in and I began to wonder if maybe that was that was becoming a hindrance to us as a people. That we were just pressing on. We were we were plowing ahead with the book God had us in, had us in and then all of a sudden 
we come to a screeching halt as here comes Christmas Eve and we're expected then all of a sudden to just have our minds right, have our hearts right where God wants them to be as we celebrate the coming of Christ, the Advent. And it is a special time of year and so it seems that it would be best for us instead of just plowing ahead through the book of Ephesians to hit pause for a moment, to take a break and to spend our next four Sunday mornings together bouncing around the Bible a bit Asking God to show us by his word what actually happened in that stable some 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. Now, you, may be, you may be tempted to say to yourself, well, good. A Christmas sermon ser- series, finally something light. We can take a break from so much deep theology. I know this story. I'm comfortable and it's happy and Got great memories as a child of talking about the Christmas story. So, so finally, finally we get to show up in this place and for four weeks at least. And then, of course, on Christmas Eve and then Christmas morning is a, is a Sunday this year. Finally, I got really bad news for you, if that's your hope. Because there's, there's perhaps nothing quite as challenging. This is, this is why you're sensing what I think you... But I sense in myself, I'm, I'm trying to, to move ahead. I'm, I'm trying to find my footing here. But I, I think what, what I sense in terms of this trepidation and, is that there's nothing as challenging to the finite mind as the incarnation. Carne meaning flesh, in meaning in. The eternal word coming in the flesh with the exception of the holy trinity which of course is wrapped up in this entire story there is nothing so beyond comprehension as the word becoming flesh there's there's nothing that challenges us that that stretches the bounds of human thought and human language like the person and the natures of christ Any of you that know anything about church history, you know that for the first five centuries in the history of the church, there was incredible heresy almost always surrounding this. How do we understand the word become flesh? I would encourage you at some point over this Christmas season, maybe maybe this afternoon to set the tone, to go back and, and read those three great creeds. Read the Apostles' Creed. And, and read the Nicene Creed from, from 381 and read the Chalcedonian Creed from 451 and just listen to the ways that it's not the word of God, it's not scripture, it's not infallible, it's not inerrant, that's not our ultimate authority, but listen to the ways that saints of old, godly men of old have come to the scripture and they've seen these two incredible realities, the word become flesh and they've sought to sum up for us, to set boundaries Because the reality is so much of what we can do is just say, well, no, not like that. Because there's nothing like it in in all creation. There's there's nothing else like it in the human experience. And so the best thing they can do is we can set boundaries around it and say, well, it's it's the word become flesh. But no, 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 not not like that. And don't don't think in those terms and just just cut off our mind at at every path when we seek to move into some type of heresy as we try to We try to make some sense of this incredible truth that the Scripture so clearly reveals to us. 
And I've, I've told you before what, what, my great, what my great fear is, is that Christmas can become such an, an overly sentimental thing that we're so familiar with these stories and these texts and these songs, and we think we've got it mastered. We, we think we've got it figured out that Christmas is about the coming of Christ. And we put, we put signs in our yard that says, Jesus is the reason for the season. And then we lose our stuff whenever Target or Starbucks or somewhere seems like they're trying to take Christ out of Christmas. But, but the problem, I think, is that I've found in my own experience that there's an inverse relationship between how loudly people complain about what Starbucks does and how much they actually know about who the Christ is. And so my fear for us as a people, I've, I've used this phrase before, that we just replace Santa as the mascot of Christmas with little baby Jesus in a manger as just our mascot for Christmas. And it's so tempting to do this because the reality is that little baby Jesus laying in a manger is safe and completely unchallenging. He doesn't demand anything of us. But beloved, I tell you that little baby Jesus remaining in a manger cannot save you. And beyond this, when you, when you love something, when you love someone, you're jealous to speak accurately about them. With, with as much precision as the word of God and our human language will allow us, we're zealous and we're, we're anxious and we're, we're jealous to speak the truth about this Christ who has come, knowing we're, we're never going to fully get there. We're never going to fully get there. It's a mystery beyond comprehension. But we're going to search these scriptures and we're, we're going to wrestle together as a people and we're not going to allow ourselves just to, just to fall into the patterns of the Christmas season. We want to see you as you are and we want to, we want to know you as you are knowing that deep theology drives true and proper worship. That that's the place where we're going to find hope and joy and peace in this Christmas season. Look, I know you're not a bunch of materialists. I know that you know that Christmas isn't about presents or family meals or time off of work, as magnificent as those things are. But I'm worried you're just going to have a character of Christ Jesus at the center of your Christmas. And it's easy to have hope and peace and joy when we've got some wreaths up and we've got some happy music playing and everybody's trying to live at peace with each other. And but when real life happens, where's your peace? Where's your hope? Where's your joy? It's only in the Christ who is. That's my hope. It's my hope for us. Knowing that there's some of us that don't yet know this Christ. Look, there's children I love that we got the get-along gang that hangs out over this small pew every Sunday morning. And I, I was walking by, and I was thinking about what, what precious mo uh, memories 
they make each Sunday morning. I don't know what they're talking about. I don't care what they're talking about. They're here. Some of those babies don't know Christ. And so my, my prayer, that's why David read this text earlier. John says there's, there's so much I could tell you about Christ. Just in the things that I've seen and just in what he has, he's done, there's so much. There wouldn't be enough room in all the earth to tell you all that there is to know about this Christ. But the things that I have told you, I've told you so that you may know that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and then in believing, you may have eternal life. That's my hope. That's my prayer. This morning I'm there and I'm praying, dear God, save these children. Would this be the Christmas that you save these children? Do they finally, for the first time, see him as he is? Know him as he is? Is it going to be hard? Yes, it's going to be hard. Just, just today, I feel so inadequate to try and present to you what I see in this word. But that God brings children to life through his word. Grown folks to life through his word. And so I'm going to trust in his word today because you know me, I'm a systematic guy. My brain works in systematic ways and we come to something like the person and the natures of Christ and I just want to move slowly and methodically and comprehensively and just cover it all. But we, we can't. We don't have time for one and that's not God's design for the Lord's day. His design for this time is that we just come to the word and we trust the spirit and we allow him to do the work knowing we can't touch it all. We're going to read the prologue to John's gospel this morning. I promise you I could do two years of sermons just on this text. And we're going to do it in one. In one week, we're going to cover this. But I'm going to trust that God works through his word. I'm not going to make you stand back up. I was supposed to have already read the text. I just realized I didn't even read the text to you. So I'm going to allow you as my Christmas gift to you. but I ask even though you're not standing to hold this word with complete reverence, recognizing the weight and the authority that it holds. As I said, this is the prologue to John's gospel, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God bore witness about him and cried out, 
This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. All God's people said, amen. Father God is... Desperately as ever, we need you this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe what you have revealed here. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So the the Apostle John, as you know, is the one who most often referred to himself as the Apostle whom Jesus loved. And there there had been perhaps no man in all the earth that ever had more access to Christ, more access to information about Christ. It seems as though perhaps this man was a cousin of Jesus. We know that he was among the very first disciples that Jesus called to himself. In fact, he was one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John, seeing things that even the other apostles did not see going upon that high mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, and beholding there the glory of God, obviously being there in the upper room on the night when Christ was was betrayed, being there at the crucifixion. But then even after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, this was the one whom Jesus looked at, and he, he said to his mother, Mary, he says, Woman, behold your son, and he says to John, Son, behold, your mother. And the scripture tells us that from that point forward, he took Mary into his own home as his own mother. So anything that John couldn't remember, that that he couldn't get out of the other apostles, as he, he tried to bring to recollection all that Christ was and all that Christ did, he had Mother Mary there in his house, and he could have asked her. I don't remember. What was Jesus like as a boy? And tell me again what happened when you took him to the temple Remind me about the glory of God that you saw in Cana as he turned water into wine. There had never been a man that knew more about Jesus than this man called John. And now he comes, and it's maybe 20 years after the writing of the synoptics, Matthew and Mark and Luke, and he, he comes with a very different purpose. You see, John doesn't want to build his gospel with suspense like the others. You, you read through the other gospels, and it, it, he's, you can tell that they're building a story, and they're carrying us along with the disciples, and they were so slow to learn. They were so hard-hearted and stubborn and, and thick-headed. They were so slow to learn, and so he doesn't want to, to build like the others do to the point where Jesus calms the storm, and the men there in the boat say, what, what kind of man is this? He wants to come right out of the gate and make sure you know, let me tell you who this is. I want to make clear to you who this one is so that you can know right away exactly what kind of person this is that's doing all these things. It's almost as if John's saying, I don't want you to miss who Jesus is in all the miracles and the teaching. I bring you here this morning because I've got a similar hope. I don't want you to miss who Jesus is for all the shepherds and the wise men and the Christmas merriment. I want you to miss who he is. So right off the bat, 
we go here. Now, he begins his gospel differently than the others as well. Now, now he, he begins with John the Baptist, just like Mark does. He begins his gospel with John the Baptist. He doesn't go all the way back to Abraham like Matthew does and through Jesus' earthly lineage, and he doesn't go back to Adam like Luke does. But in his prologue, we see that he actually reaches back even further. We see, we see that he goes back even further here because he says, in, in the beginning. Now, immediately, anyone that's familiar with the Hebrew Bible, your mind would have immediately gone to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But it doesn't take long of reading through these first couple of verses in John's prologue, and you realize, actually, he's reached back even further than that. That John reaches back even further than Moses in the creation account, because I want you to take note of the fact that he uses that word over and over and over again in the imperfect tense, was. Look at it. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see, Moses, he takes us back all the way to the beginning. To that time when time and space and matter were all created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John tells us when the heavens and the earth were created, the word already was. He wasn't created. He didn't come into being. He simply was the eternal word of God. There was never a time when the word was not. John's not going to let us get into his gospel without seeing this. Lest our minds drift away with our own human conceptions of what it must mean to be the son of God. Immediately, right out the gate, he says, before there was time, before there was space, before there was matter, before there was a world, before there was heavens, before there was angels, before there was demons, before there was Satan, before anything was that was, the word was. In the beginning was the word. And we might be tempted to ask, well, why does he use this term word? We know who he's talking about, and not only because this is a gospel, a story about the person and work of Jesus Christ, but in verse 17, he clearly identifies him as Jesus Christ. In 14, he tells us that he is the one who came in the flesh, and we know it's none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh. And so why doesn't he just say that then? Why do you have to speak like this, John? Why do you have to call him the Word? Why not just call him the Son of God? In the beginning was the Son of God. Because the reality is, even with that phrase, the Son of God, comes all kinds of questions. Again, is the Son a created one? Was the Son in some way born of God? Was there a time when he was not? And what are we dealing with here? Are this perhaps two gods? Is this a son God and a father God? And, and perhaps is the son maybe a junior God or a, or a lesser God? So he instead uses the word, word. It's logos in Greek. Now, I understand I'm doing a lot of preparatory work and preparing you to think like John. And, and this is usually the work that you do before you work verse by verse through an entire book. But I feel like we've got to have this preparation before we even tackle just 
before we even dip our toe in the water because what you're going to find in the way that John writes is it's incredibly simple. Whenever you go through Greek in, in seminary, you're, as a first-year Greek student, the first book of the Bible that they, they call you to work on, trying to translate, it's actually going to be John's first letter, 1 John, because John has a style that's it's just very short and, and simple and, and straightforward. This is his words. In the beginning was the Word. That's, that's a plain statement. And yet it seems as though every word that John uses is incredibly pregnant with meaning. There's such a, a fullness and, and, and a loftiness. Now, he doesn't use long run-on sentences that are incredibly difficult to diagram like the Apostle Paul, and yet there's no less depth. He too sweeps us up into the heights of heaven to see this Christmas story from a, from a cosmic view, from an eternal view. So he begins with this word, the word, and I think perhaps one of the reasons he does this is because he's writing not just to the Jews. When he says, in the beginning, the, the, anybody familiar with the Hebrew Bible, they immediately go back to Genesis 1-1, to the beginning, and they see what he's doing here. They see the picture that he's painting for them, but then there would have also been Gentiles and, and Greeks and Hellenistic thinkers that were there, and they would have been very familiar with this term, the, the logos, the reason, the logic. To them, this was a concept of why everything is. What is the purpose? What is the reason? What is the uniting theme for everything that is? Isn't that what the world searches for today? Why are we here? What's the thing that holds it all together? What's the purpose for our existence? Well, to the Greek mind, that was the logos. It was an impersonal power. It was a, it was a force behind the universe. Again, not completely unlike the minds of today. People are looking for some reason why things are, and they'll, they'll give it names like, like karma or, or energy or the, or the force or mother nature or something like this. This is the way their minds worked, but it's something common to the human experience. We're always wanting to know why and what's the purpose and what's the end for this whole thing. There's got to be a reason why we're here. And so they would have been very familiar with their philosophers wrestling with this concept, this idea, what is the logos? What is the purpose? But John won't let them stay there because immediately he says that it was he who was in the beginning. That it's not a what, it's a who. It's Christ Jesus, that he is the all in all. He is the reason. He is the end. He is the purpose for all creation. He is the target for all of life, the eternal word. Not only does he draw us to the fact that this isn't a what, but a he, but he, he tells us a little bit about what he was doing before there was a creation. In the beginning, he was. Well, what was he doing before the beginning? St. Augustine quipped that what God was doing before there was time, before there was space, before there was matter, was he was building hell for people that asked such unanswerable questions. But the scripture tells us what he was doing. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. From eternity past, the word was with God. Pros tan theon. There's a number of different ways in Greek that you can say the word with. There, there's, you can say with as in just around, as if 
I'm, I'm just with you guys right, right now. Or I, I go to a ball game and I'm with 50,000 of my closest friends. But this is a different word. This, this word pros, it means toward. It, it can have the meaning of face to face. It's an intimate term for being with someone. Some older translations of the Bible have this translated as, in the beginning, the word was in the bosom of God. I've I've told you before how fond I am of the picture of this very same apostle, John, the one whom Jesus loved. They're in that upper room at the Lord's Supper. Scripture says that he leaned back against the breast of Christ. They're reclining at table and needed to ask him a question, and he just leans his head back and looks up. He's face to face. Can you imagine how, how close? Brian, you and I, if we were reclining on our arms here, and we were eating together as brothers, and I needed to ask you a question, I rest my head against your chest, and I look into your eyes. Six inches apart, I'm, I'm speaking to you face to face. This is where the word was in the beginning with God. It's personal. It's intimate, and it's loving. Again, I remind you, John was in that upper room. He had heard the words of Jesus there. You see, Nicodemus knew to say that Jesus had come from God, that didn't get you all the way there. You understand this. You remember that Nicodemus had come to Jesus, and he said, look, I've seen the works that you do, and nobody can do these things unless they've come from God. Clearly, you're a teacher or a prophet, or a miracle worker of some sort. It's clear to me that you have come from God. But that doesn't get you all the way here. The Apostle John had been there, and he had heard the way that the Son prayed to the Father. He said, Father, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. We begin to recognize that this God who is love, for all eternity he has been loving. He's been loving himself existing eternally in perfect love and and intimacy and communion, face-to-face, in the Father's bosom. This is the one who has come. We're going to see some of the Father's love in sending this Son. That they've existed eternally. This existed eternally as, as Father and Son. You see, if we're not careful, we don't guard our thoughts, we'll believe that the Son only became the Son when he came in obedience to the Father. But John won't allow us to do this. They were always there existing as as father and son. You see, there's a way in which we could properly say that Adam or Israel or King Solomon or every believer for that matter, we're all adopted sons of God. But only he was the son by nature. Eternally, he has always been the son to the father. This word, he has always been the son of God. And the, and the people around him, they recognized what this meant, that this was, a, this was unique. This is not like Israel or, or King Solomon. When Jesus talks about the fact that the Father has always been working, and I too am working, I'm making clear to you in John 5 that, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. They picked up stones to put him to death because they said he is making himself equal with God, even calling God his Father. They recognized what he was saying. Not like all creatures are children, offspring of God, Not even like the elect or the adopted sons of God, but by nature, eternally, I am the son and he is my father. And we we see this as we we work throughout John's gospel. I want you to think about John 3.16, where it says that God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son. And then in John 3, 17, it says that God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world. He was a son before he was sent. Do you see? They've always existed as father and as son. That anything we know about earthly fathers and sons, these are but faint pictures of who these are. The word who was always with God. And, and we begin to, to see the Trinity take take form here that what God's revealing to us through the Apostle Paul here is something about his nature these aren't incidental things these aren't inconsequential things we can we can be tempted to think in those terms right we come to a a doctrine like the Trinity like the incarnation and we can think yeah those are those are interesting they stretch our mind when we get bored of the basic gospel we'll go to these other things but they're completely impractical they're unessential doctrine Beloved, I tell you, there's nothing more essential than this. There's no higher thought that you can have about God than this, that he is the triune God, that we are a Trinitarian people. We're not Unitarians, believing that, that perhaps it was God the Father who then became God the Son, who then later became God the Holy Spirit, and at the same time, we're not polytheists or tritheists, believing that there are three gods or, or multiple gods. We're a Trinitarian people. It's foundational to our faith because it's essential to the nature of God. Again, I tell you, there's, there's nothing higher that God could reveal about himself, nothing that stretches our mind, any, no greater privilege than for God to reveal something like this to us. And it's not just meaningful because it's a true revelation about who God is. It's meaningful because it's absolutely necessary for your redemption. We're not yet done with the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, but how much time have I spent drawing your, drawing your attention, drawing your focus to the reality that it is the triune God who saves, God the Father who planned, God the Son who accomplished, God the Holy Spirit who came and applied. There would be no salvation apart from this triune God. And you remember that Jesus, when he was in the upper room, how much of John's gospel does he spend there in that room? Chapters 13 through 17 of his gospel. Jesus is there, and he's coming near his dying moment. He's about to depart from them, and he's promised he's going to send another. Again, more evidence of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit coming as God. The Spirit of God coming to dwell with them. And what is his focus? I want you to think about this. You've just spent three years pouring the gospel and and the truth of the kingdom of God into the hands of these ordinary men. And you know how foolish and hard-hearted and how little they understand, even at this moment. So you're going to tell them the things that are most necessary for them to understand, aren't you? You're going to tell them the things that are most practical, that are most necessary for them to then take this gospel to the ends of the earth. And what does Jesus bring out over and over and over again? That God is a triune God. Some of the most lofty statements, some of the most clear statements about the fact that God has and always has been, is and always has been, Father, Son, and Spirit. We find them right there. So when we see here in verse 14 that it says, and the word became flesh, we know that this word was not the Father. It was not the Father who became flesh. It was not the Holy Spirit who was also, you you, you recognize that we could also say, in the beginning was the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit was with God, face to face with God, in the bosom of God, eternally loving God. But it, it wasn't the Father who came. It wasn't the Son, uh, excuse me, it wasn't the Spirit who came. It was the Son. And we recognize that each of these persons of the Holy Trinity, they, they always act in a way that is, that is fitting of, of their agency, that it is right and it, and it is true of the Son, that we would always say that He is the begotten One, eternally begotten of the Father, and that He is the one who would be sent by the Father, who Himself is unbegotten. It was right then that the Spirit would proceed forth from both the Father and the Son, each acting in perfect accordance with their personhood. It says that the Word, that is the Son, He became flesh and He dwelt among us. Now, if we're not careful, you read through a gospel like John's or any of the gospels for that matter, but if, if we're not careful, we can be tempted to believe that, you see, we're going to, as you look to the, to the functional and, and the, the, the economic trinity, you see there's this ontological trinity, this ontology is just the study of being, that God is by nature, in his being, in his essence, what is God? God is a triune God. God is three in one. That's his nature. That's his essence. That's his being. But then there's also a, a functional or an economic trinity, the way in which this God who is three reveals himself in redemption. Are you following me? And as we see this God who is three revealing himself in the coming of the Son, we see him submitting himself to the Father. Doesn't he say this? He says, I only do that which I've seen the Father do, and I only speak the words that the Father has given me to speak. And then you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's there, and he's submitting his will to the Father. And we see this perfect submission of the Son to the Father. And if we're not careful, though, we can believe that there was some type of equal, eternal submission, as if the Son was somehow lesser to the Father. As if he were a junior God. He was a gopher God. As if he were a lesser God. But John won't let us go there. Because he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the whole point of John's Gospel. I could have written you a million things. I could have filled all the earth with the things there are to say about this Word. But I've written these that you might believe he is the Christ, the Son of God. You need to know that this one who comes is God. Fully God. That what we have in this God is not three parts that when they come together like a transformer, they make up God. It's not a third of God, a third of God, a third of God. Each of them fully God. That what we see in the Word is the fullness of deity. The power, the might, the majesty. There's no attributes that the Father has that the Word does not. There's no attributes that the Spirit has that the Word does not. But everything that means to be God is there eternally in this Word. Auto theos, God in himself. Fully God. Now we confess this, you realize this, we confess this. Every single week as a church with the singing of the doxology. 
Praise God. I want you to notice. Praise God. How many gods are there? One. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him because he is one. All creatures here below. Praise him because he's one above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We confess the Trinity each week before we exit this place because to truly worship God is to worship this God who is one in essence, one in being, one in substance, and three in persons. And I don't know what to do with that other than to stand in awe and say, Wow. I've warned you before about trying to come up with earthly analogies. And I've heard them all and they all stink. He is not water and ice and mist. That's modalism. He's not one person who is both a father and a son and a brother. He is uniquely and incomprehensibly, one in being, one in essence, one in nature, one in substance, existing eternally. It's three persons. Now, I know that the Jehovah's Witness like to come to your house. They say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's what their Bible says. Because I've talked a lot about Greek. My Greek is really poor. I'm out punning my coverage here. Let me already just go ahead and and warn you. But I do know this. What what they claim is, and and they they rightly claim, is there's no article in the Greek, the word the, before this word God. So oftentimes the way Greek works is you'll have the word the before something, making clear it is, it is one. Or if the article isn't there, you could put the word a before it. Just one among many. He's not the God. He's one among many gods. And so they'll come to your house and they'll say, well, actually in the Greek, the isn't there. Therefore, it should be translated. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was a God. I listened to a commentator this morning and he says probably the best thing to do, or not this morning, this week, probably the best thing to do when a Jehovah's Witness shows up and tells you that is to get out your Greek New Testament and ask them to show you. They don't have a clue. But apart from that, there's plenty of times, even within this very section of Scripture where the article isn't there and yet still it is translated as God. Not a God. But you don't need to be a Greek scholar. You don't need to understand the Greek language in order to see how foolish this is. Because let me ask you a question. If I wanted to make clear to you that someone is God, as in the God, as in the God of the heavens and the earth, as in the God that we worship, as in the only God that ever is, what would be the first thing that I would tell you about this God? If I were to go all throughout this room, I were to ask these children, tell me something that you know about God. Yes, that God, the God. What do you know about that God? What would be the first thing that they would say? He made everything. That's what John says. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was not made. All things were made through him. 
Verse 4 goes on to say that in him is life, that all life finds its source in this one who is called the Word, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. So this is another way in which we might understand this word, word, or, or logos. While to the Greek it might mean the meaning or the purpose or, or the end for which the earth exists. But for the Hebrew mind, when they hear in the beginning, they know by which, they know that it is by the word that God created, that God spoke. He said, let there be light, and there was light. It was through the power of his word that God not only creates, but gives life. That he brings life into being through the power of his word. And so the Jewish mind, even if they don't think about the Lagos like the Greek, immediately their mind would have gone there. Oh, I see who this one is. This is the one that was not only there before the beginning, this is the one by whom all things are created. We read that wonderful passage in Colossians 1.16, speaking about the preeminence of, of Christ. And we see very similar language. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Again, the logos is the end. It's the purpose. It's the reason why everything exists. He's not just the creator of all things. He's the end for which they were created. He is the preeminent Christ, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That not only is he the one who has created all that is, he's the one that continues even now to sustain it. You see, there's all types of, of messed up thinking about who this one was. What does it mean for the word to become flesh? That maybe he ceased being God. He took off his God hat or he, he laid aside his divinity for a moment that he could come and take upon himself flesh. And he stopped to do what God does. And scripture won't allow us to go there. It says that he's holding all things together even now. He continues to be the, the divine, the perfectly fully, completely God, the Logos, that that's the one who has come, that there wasn't, it, it wasn't as though God became man, it's that God took humanity onto himself, do you understand? There wasn't a transformation of divinity. Deity doesn't change, deity doesn't, doesn't mutate. There's no, there's no blending, there's no crossing over, there's no changing into something that it was not. That the one who has always been God continues to be God, but he took to himself that which he was not. I saw those eyebrows, let me say it again. It's not as though there were a human person called Jesus, and God the Son stepped down from heaven and he transformed this human person Jesus into a divine man into a superhuman of some sort. And it also isn't as though the divine God of the universe stepped down into creation and then his divinity got watered down by humanity. Instead, what we see is there is no mixing. There is no blending. There is no, no new substance that's created. That still he retained his nature of ultimately and fully and completely God and yet took upon himself something which he had never been, something which the Father did not become, something which the Spirit did not become, fully human. So we see how the, the triune God now reveals himself in this one person, Christ Jesus, with two natures, the nature of God and the nature of man. And the scripture says, verse 10, that he was in the world and the world was made through him. And it's easy to understand, I think, 
why Christ had to come as, as, a, as a child, why Christ had to come through natural birth. You understand that it is, it is the conception that is miraculous, not the gestation and not the delivery. Mary, to the best of my knowledge, had a completely normal pregnancy and a completely normal, at least physically, a normal delivery. It was, it was the conception, but we, it's easy to see, at least at some levels, why didn't he just come as a man, right? Why, why didn't he just fall out of heaven? Why didn't he just drop to the earth at 30 years old, live out that three-year ministry, die on the cross, and go back to heaven? Why did he have to walk through those first 30 years? Why did he have to come as a child? Well, to fulfill all righteousness and, and to, to be fully human, to, to grow and to learn and, and to, to live as one under the law. He had, to, he had to do all these things, but, but I think that there's also a picture there for us. As we look, there's a nativity scene out here in the foyer, and many of you have nativity scenes in your home, and children are always drawn to baby Jesus in the manger, right? They like to, like to pick him up and like to look at him, and you talk about, this is Jesus. This is the one who died on the cross. This is the one who came down from heaven. He took the humanity that you can see. You can see his humanity here you wouldn't be able to see him otherwise had he not taken humanity to himself. You can see him here, but it, it, should, it should be a shot to the conscience. It should strike us when we realize that this one who is represented here is a little baby. The one who is completely dependent upon his mother to, to wrap him in swaddling clothes and, and, and to, to nurse her from his, to nurse him from her, her breast, that he was at the same time sustaining the universe. Is there anything more helpless than a baby? You understand this. Had Mary left Jesus to himself, he would have died. And yet at that very moment, he was sustaining the life of his mother, along with the stars. And the angels. And everything else that ever was. ordaining and sustaining and, and moving all things. So then as we see Jesus grow and we see men cursing his name and spitting in his face and calling him a, a blasphemer and a devil, you recognize that in that moment, if the word had stopped doing his work, they would cease to exist. He, he wouldn't need to strike him dead. He, he wouldn't need to allow Peter to pick up his sword and lop the guy's head off. He wouldn't need to call down a legion of angels to destroy them. He would just stop his work of sustaining all that is. They wouldn't exist anymore. They wouldn't fall over dead. I don't know what would happen. The particles just wouldn't even be. Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe. It's talking of Christ. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Beloved, this is the one who comes. This is the one who comes. I pray desperately for these children that they'll see this and they'll come to him and they'll, they'll cry out to him. I pray for some of you. There's, there's no way that everyone in this room is saved. Some of you would see him and 
you would, you would come to him. You would see him as a Savior, and in him is the promise of eternal life and forgiveness for your sins. That you'll come to him, and you get there, and you recognize, oh, Andrew, my creator, and my God, and my sustainer, and so much more than just the lamb who gave his life for me. And the word became flesh, verse 14 says, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. I, th- I think John is talking here about the things that he literally saw. I think he's talking about the, the Mount of Transfiguration, that moment when, when the, the Son, he, he pulled back the veil of his flesh for a moment, and they saw the glory that had always been his. He didn't leave it behind. You can't shed glory because glory is not something that the Son took upon himself. The glory is who he is. It's of his essence. It's of his nature. It's what it means to be God, to be the King and Lord of glory. So what did he have to do? He had to, he had to pull back the humanity for a minute. He had to say, this thing that I've taken upon myself, let me, let me allow you to just part it a little bit and to see what I've always been, to see my glory. And he's saying, I've, I've seen that glory, that glory that was ordinarily veiled and, and concealed in this flesh, that glory that he, he refused to use to his own advantage along the way as he lived as a man, as a rightful representative. He, he, he pulls it back, and he got a glimpse of it. He's saying, I've, I've seen it. I was there, and I saw it. John will go on in, in chapter 12 to talk about what the prophet Isaiah saw. You remember the scene in the throne room, and Isaiah is, is there, and, and he's, God is upon his throne, and the, and the train of his, his robe, it, it, it fills the place, and these holy angels, pure and, and powerful, they have to shield their face from this glorious God of the universe. Holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory and John says in chapter 12 that the one he saw was him it was the word it was the son that's the one that he saw this one whom angels shield their eyes and they cover their feet because they're they're feeling their creatureliness that he's now here and we saw him we saw what was veiled beneath the flesh we saw what was in that little baby we saw what was in that boy that was in the temple we saw what was there hanging upon the cross we've seen the glory that has always been his we, we've seen it and again i ask you to marvel at this i was thinking this week about solomon's completion of the temple you, you remember this he finally david can't do it god won't allow him to do it but solomon comes and he builds this this temple this permanent tabernacle. It's not permanent because no longer, but at least from time, more, more permanent tabernacle, a place where God would dwell with his people. And isn't that what it says, that he came and he, and he dwelled with them? That's what it means. It's the word tabernacle we talked about last Sunday night. But I want you to think about this. Is Solomon's there and he brings in the ark into the Holy of Holies and he offers up this prayer and the scripture tells us, 1 Kings 8, verse 10, that a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. They couldn't even go into the place because the glory of the Lord was so thick. What's it mean? I don't know. It was represented like a cloud. But then do you remember what Solomon prayed at his prayer of dedication? 
having seen all of this, the most magnificent building you could ever imagine with, with gold and precious metals and just the, the, the glory of God descending upon it. And he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I've built. He's saying this place is marvelous, but heaven can't contain you. How's a building going to contain you? How's anything of this earth going to contain you? Then we come to Colossians 2.9. It says that in him the fullness of deity dwells. <laughs> Heavens can't contain you, but you stepped down into creation and took upon yourself flesh. Are you starting to feel the weight? I get misty-eyed thinking about it. Who can comprehend such a thing? He, he concludes, verse 18, and no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We say, no one's seen God. God's invisible. You can't see God. You can't see invisible. And even if you could, you'd die. Even if you could, you'd die. But he has. Because he, remember, he's face to face. He's in the bosom. He is towards, with God, from all eternity. He has, and he's come to make him known. So we see a third way, possibly, that he uses this word, word, or lagos. It's the reason and the purpose and the end for which everything exists. And it's the power by which, through whom and, and by whom, everything exists. He's the one who has created and sustains everything that is. And he's the ultimate revelation of God. You can't see God, but I am the one who has been eternally with God, and I've come to reveal him, to show him that you can see who he is. You want to know what God is like. You look to Christ. We're going to talk next week about the, the covenant of redemption, and if we're not careful, we can get it twisted into believing that the Son came to cause the Father to love us. That the Father was a Father of judgment and, and of, of wrath and of, and of anger, and the Son came, and he had to, in, in, in some way, chill his father out or, or convince him to love us. But no, you look to Christ and the love that you see in the face of Christ, that is the love of God. His true light, verse 9 says, a true light which gives light to everyone. Verse 4 says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. All throughout John's gospel, I'm running out of time. I knew I would, but all throughout John's gospel, we, we see this comparison of light and life versus darkness and death. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That light is the thing by which you see. That light, of course, represents the glory of God and the, the, the radiance of, of God as he, as he shows himself to be the, the glorious one. But light is also the way by which we see things that are. And it's only when we see him as we are that we have life. And so he's making clear to us that only in this one, only in the eternal word is there life and is there light. And outside of him, there is no light and there is no life. There's only darkness and death. So the question for us today, the question for us this Christmas season is, do you see? Have you, have you beheld this glory? 
It's so easy to say, well, if I'd just been there, if I'd just been there with John, if I'd, if I'd just been there upon that high hill and high mountain, or, or, or maybe if I'd just been in Jerusalem and just seen some of his miracles, or maybe if I'd been like, like a mother that brought her sick child and, and Jesus healed him, then it would be so much easier to believe, to see the glory of God done in the works and, and the wonders that he performed. But I remind you that there were so many who saw and they didn't believe. Verse 5 says that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That word can also be translated as mastered. It's, it's, it means understood that men with dark eyes, men with darkened eyes and with darkened hearts, men who have been blinded by the devil, that's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, they've, been, they've been blinded by the devil. They do not see the light of the gospel of Christ. They do not see the glory of God in the face of his Son. You don't need to be there to see the glory is what I'm telling you. You could have been there and completely missed the glory, but you can be here today. You can hear his word under the power of his spirit, and you can behold his glory. You can have this light shine in your heart that you could see him. That's what I've tried to do today. That's why I've trembled so. I'm trying to show you the glory of God in the face of Christ. I'm not equipped for such a thing. Who is? But I pray with all that's in me that you see him and you, you recognize him as the, the king of glory. Not just your savior. Not just your buddy. Not just your pal. Not even just your mediator. The God of glory. That you see him and that by this you will live. Because that's the only two responses that there are. You see, if you're just comfortable leaving little baby Jesus in the manger, then you've never seen him. You've not really seen him. If you're comfortable with him there, I remind you, King Herod, he got news of who this child was, and his response was, I want to kill him. If you can just be neutral on him, ambivalent towards him, then you've not, you've not seen him. You have no comprehension of what the word has to, to say about him. There's only, there's only two proper responses, two, or two real responses. Verse 11 says that he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. There were some who appeared to receive him for a moment, weren't there? Thousands at times that came to him. They wanted his gifts. They wanted his goodness. They wanted his stuff. They didn't receive him as he was. You understand? You can't just receive him as little baby Jesus that stays in a manger and demands nothing of you. You receive him as the God of the universe, the one who has created and sustained all that is, the ends for which everything exists, the God of glory. You receive him as that or you won't receive him. Verse 12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Receive him like this, or you will not receive him at all. You will fall down on your face like Thomas, and you will say, my Lord and my God. He saw the nail prints, and he saw the hole in his side, and he recognized this wasn't just a man that died in my stead. This is my Lord, and this is my God. That's the Christmas message, dear friends. I finish with verse 16 and 17. For his fullness, excuse me, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Beloved, the gospel message, the message of Christmas is not try harder. It is see the glory of God in the face of his son Christ Jesus come to him and you will find grace upon grace upon grace. Father God, we praise you. We praise you as the triune God of the universe, the God who is three in nature, excuse me, one in nature, three in persons, one in being, one in essence, and yet Father, Son, and Spirit. We thank you that you sent your Son, Christ Jesus, and we thank you that he joyfully came. We thank you that as he ascended back to your right hand, you then sent your spirit to awaken in us life and light. You have caused the eyes of our heart to be opened, to rightly behold and see and worship this one who is the king of glory. Father, I continue to pray. I will pray all throughout this Advent season and until my dying day that those who count themselves among us that don't yet know you, have not yet come to you through Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that by the working of your spirit, not through the will of man, not through the efforts of men, not through the logic of men, but through the work of your Holy Spirit, they would see and they would be saved. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.